0: Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. I am not Maureen McGrath, but I'm her technical producer, Leonardo Coelho. Tonight on the show, we bring you a conversation about controlling chaos with Carolyn Gross, author of the book entitled Rise Above the Chaos, How to Keep Positive in an Unsettled World. Also, what do you know about prostate gland enlargement? Dr. Dean Elterman joins us to explain. Plus... Dr. Krashidalati talks controlling relationships and how to deal with them. And now, as I step out of the plate, stepping
1: up to the microphone heels, the voice of the Sunday Night Health Show, here's Maureen McGrath.
2: welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Yes, even in a pandemic. I am Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and host of this program. Tonight, we've got Maureen McGrath behind the mic and Mike McLeod on the boards. Good evening. How are you?
1: I'm very well. How are you tonight? Uh,
2: Good, good. Thank you. Holding up okay in uh, this new world?
1: Yes, yes. And uh, just trying to remember everything Brendan taught me. So (laughs) we miss him very much. Maybe he's at home listening with his mask on or
2: something. We do. Hopefully he has (laughs) his mask on. He was always one. He was a mask wearer. Not that everyone is in this country. I got mine ready. I'm ready every day. We have the (laughs) (laughs) anti-everythings. All right. Anyway, thanks so much. Uh, much, Mike, for being here with me this evening and very happy to have you. Tonight on the program, we're talking about rising above the chaos. How can you do that? If you'd like to be a part of the show, please give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well or email me in confidence at Hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects, this show is not a replacement for a virtual visit to your doctor. Doctor, We've got lots to talk about on the program tonight, but right now...
0: And now, Maureen's Health Headline.
2: Remember the world we used to live in before the pandemic struck? We had this nonstop chaos, uncertainty, and an over-scheduled life. Chronic busyness was the flavor of the day. The busier we were, the better we were. Well, she wrote this book, Rise Above the Chaos, How to Keep Positive in an Unsettled World, before the pandemic. But we need this book even more now. Joining me on the line is author Carolyn Gross. Good evening, Carolyn. Good evening, Maureen. My pleasure to be with you. Oh, well, thanks so much for joining me this evening. It's much needed for all of us, yeah. me included. Where do we where do we even start, right? Exactly. <laughs> where do we begin? You've heard the expression, do I stay or do I go? I love yours. Yeah. Do you shine or do you whine? <laughs> uh, anyway, there it is. There are the shiners and there are the whiners. You are absolutely correct about that. People who, you know, see the the glass half full and those who see the glass half empty and and never the Twain shall meet. Um, but I, in this world, you you wrote this book uh, when we were living in that uh, world long ago where we could go wherever we wanted to, <laughs> travel whenever we wanted to. We knew what people looked like. Um, we weren't being told to go home, go back to our rooms, wear a mask, don't kiss anyone right. anymore. Um, yep. You know, life has or changed hug. or hug. Um, it's yep. it's so strange to actually see somebody hug uh, somebody else or, or make an attempt uh, to hug you. Um yep. But anyway, so tell me why you wrote this book in the first place, and how it applies today
3: Well, um managing chaos, staying calm in the midst of chaos, and rise above the chaos have been my life's work for the last two decades so um, when i when I started, I was trying to help people stay calm in the midst of chaos because this was right around the era of of 9-11 in the States. But the reason I wrote Rise Above the Chaos was that the technology connectivity of all of our lives had created like this backdrop of chaos that was there, you know, at the touch of our fingertips, right? If I can't sleep, I pick up my phone, I look at social media, right? Right. Or if I wake up, I'm not awake until I
2: see if anybody texted me last night. <laughs> That's what right. think. That fine line and, between work and leisure no longer exists, as you say in your book. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And it's and even when people go on vacation or holiday, again, this is back when we could go on vacation and holiday, right? Now we can't so even we, go on vacation or holiday. I we're still know. exhausted. I <laughs> so a lot of these, uh, so we're, instead of being on vacation you know, and wondering, are we going to work when our, we're on our vacation? Which is called leisure, by the way. You know, when you work during your leisure mm. time, it's leisure. Okay. Yeah, leisure. <laughs> so we we lost leisure and we got leisure. <laughs> but now, but now we're on lockdown. And that's another point, though, of why did I write Rise Above the Chaos? Because things were escalating. You know, before lockdown, and of course now since w- they, there was just this pace that was escalating so much and. You you talk about health. I talk about health. Right. And you can't always be in that fight or flight, you know, waiting for a shoot to drop mode. And um,
2: and yet look where we are. A- absolutely. In in many ways, there there have been some benefits um, to the pandemic. And I say that very cautiously right. because I know a lot yeah. of people have suffered. They've lost their jobs. Yeah. I heard a gentleman who said we used to have two modest incomes and now we have none. We have no income at all. Mm-hmm. We both lost our jobs. We have two kids. Um, many right. people are suffering with illness unnecessarily with illness. People with comorbidities as well have, are struggling um, with the coronavirus or extreme fears around getting. Getting the coronavirus. But, but in a lot right. of ways, um, the, the world calmed down, really. That that frantic pace, that get up yep. and go, 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 never stop, yep. always busy, always on your phones. It would be a dinner table of everybody on their phones. You'd have to make a rule. Right. Everybody put their phones down. Now, yep. I mean, I have to say, and my family, it's not an issue anymore. Nobody picks up their phones yep. at dinner anymore. It's, it's just a different peace. It's a different calm. Um, but we certainly do have and, and many families have that chaos still because of this pandemic, because they don't know where their next rent check is coming from or they don't know where how they're going to put food on their table. They're working from home. They're homeschooling their kids. So what first of all, is it about a person's attitude to this that will help them survive the chaos?
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So. You know, one thing that happened in my writing and in my research was I identified that chaos has to be looked at from two lenses. One is internal chaos, chaos that I have within me for whatever reasons, but chaos I have within me. And then external, the environmental. And what's happened is (laughs) we've all been hit with so much external chaos (laughs) Mm -hmm. That whatever internal chaos hasn't been remedied or rectified, or at least we don't have effective coping skills, that's been the stuff that's been shaking, you know. And so now more than ever, we have to have solutions and strategies to rise above it,
2: to rise above it. Absolutely. and you know, there's so many heartbreaking things. We, we had a Zoom. I, I come from a very large family. And so one of my nephews turned 13. And so we okay. had a, a big Zoom birthday party for him. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't exactly the same. He showed us his lizard and his bird. (laughs) And then we started talking politics. (laughs) And then we had to revert back to him, because it was actually about him. (laughs) But he likes politics. Back on track. (laughs) And and we all sang happy birthday. And um, but anyway, we have to find these different ways um, to, you know, to pay attention and to do those rituals that we used to do.
3: Well, and I've also always I've been calling chaos the great teacher for a number of years. It started with an early incident uh, in my family when on a Christmas holiday, my father had a spinal cord injury while swimming in the ocean at Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. So obviously that was so unexpected and a very critical situation, a defining moment situation. But what I realized in crisis and defining moment situations is we can actually um, access and rally a, a super strength within us um, that helps us be decisive and make good decisions, and also maybe realize in those moments that are so strenuous some areas where we need to change our path or you know go after a dream we always had because we don't know how much time we'll have. Right? Absolutely. And so to me, to me, COVID has done that because it it's it's been a defining moment for the collective. You know, a defining moment for the collective, like we're all under that magnifying glass right now. And then, you know, some of us are reacting similarly and others are acting so differently. You know, even just the mask, to mask or not to mask when you're taking a walk outside,
2: you know, that is the question. It's a new uh, Shakespeare play. Absolutely. And (laughs) and there can be shame in it. I'm I'm terribly sorry to hear about your father. Um, Yeah, that, been, that's
3: how my work began.
2: Yeah, it must have you been know? horrific because, um, you know, oftentimes the father is, um, yes. you know, they can certainly be, When you know, when I was growing up, my father was a very strong um, person and um, very secure and very there, very reliable. Yes. And, you know, yes. um, so uh, that's very, very difficult. Um, some people create their own chaos accidents happen as did with your father but um, some people create chaos in life tell me a little bit about those people and how can they actually um, what can be done or what can they do um, to help prevent creating that chaos
3: well there's a couple um, possibilities one is that they grew up in a chaotic environment So it's familiar. So if things slow down or it gets easy or calm, they don't know that isn't familiar, you know, family familiar. So that becomes a, you know, chaos creator right there. Um, And the others are um, maybe they need attention. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they need attention. So if they have some big drama that they can go on and on about then that'll bring them attention and those two can also be the same person you know what I mean mm-hmm. but you can have people who maybe didn't have um, all the chaos in their early life but somehow they need to have the light on them most of the time and so they create these things so those are just a couple you know
2: for, for a big throw it out there kind of mm-hmm. scenario Thanks for hanging on the line. Carolyn, I have Taylor from Calgary, Alberta, on the line. Good evening, Taylor. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Hi, Taylor. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Hi. Hi. I'm
4: good. How are you guys?
2: Great. Very well, thank you.
4: How can we help? So, yeah, I guess, sorry. Um, so, I guess I when you were saying that you're, like people are addicted to chaos and stuff like that, like, I wouldn't necessarily characterize myself as like addicted to it, like need it. But I do feel that whenever there is chaos, it seems like maybe it's something that I can solve or deal with. And maybe when there is no chaos, it feels maybe unsettling. Like, I don't know, like there's just like an unsettling feeling.
2: Yeah, that's a a great question um, or or thought and um, insight, actually. What do you think, Carolyn, for people, for someone like Taylor?
3: Some people are hardwired to solve problems and, you know, just make, make choices and make things happen. And so if chaos is your specialty, then when it shows up, you know, you've got your adrenaline pumped up and you feel your power and you go solve those problems and everybody claps. And when you don't have a challenge then you're like, well, what? wait a minute, where's my adrenaline, where's my claps, you know, <laughs> and you can waver, but it just means you're hardwired for problem solving because that's when your power, you know, your power surges really kick in. Does that seem like it fits a little?
4: Yeah, and I guess, like, my question would be, like, what can I do in those moments where I'm, like, feeling maybe content? Because I feel like I might might have a hard time feeling content. I'm either super, super happy or I'm super, super sad. So do you have any advice for, like, how to just be okay?
3: Yeah, I think we're all trying to find that right now because we are riding this thing called the Corona Coaster. So what we have to do is when you are having the happy moments, I think we all have to just go, whoa, yay, I'm feeling hopeful and I'm and I'm not feeling bad. And if you go low on the coaster, you know, and you dip low, you go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to come up a few notches. And what I would do there is just think about other times in your life where you felt a little desperate or useless and how something came along to lift you up put up lifting thoughts of your past that's called your mastery of experience into your brain and that'll bring you up from hitting that low
2: that low point Taylor can I ask you a question are you talking about at home or are you talking about in the workplace
4: I would definitely say at home
2: (laughs) at home interesting yeah yeah
4: yeah it's actually surprising my job has been the one stable thing (laughs) this year everything else has been totally chaotic and out of my control.
2: Yeah, that's really hard.
3: Yeah. So that's with family dynamics or just everybody being quarantined and
4: in each other's space and face more? Um, actually, I've been in, like, a long-distance relationship and with no jobs in, like, a lot of industries, like, no new movement. So we haven't been able to, like, actually see any, like like, change in our industry. So it's been really hard waiting for jobs and we've been apart for now a year
2: oh I see so you're employed yeah. you're employed but you're
4: yeah and my, interest. He, he is as well but he just um it's been hard to find a're jo- long distance so it's been hard to find a job here in Calgary Cl- closer yeah.
2: to you yes yes yeah and that's something you know that's the you don't have any control over and that's that's hard too because exactly. you're a problem solver
4: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, so well, then you learn patience. That's when you get
3: to learn patience, and that's a lot of character building, too. But definitely oh put God. positive thoughts out towards yeah. him, towards the, you know, that there's an opportunity because they're, we're going back to that do you shine or whine? And so even when you feel whiny and whiny, find some way to get it to the shiny.
4: Yeah. I'm trying.
2: <laughs> well, good luck,
4: Taylor. You're May- calling. You. You're yes. calling us. Yeah, thank you guys thing. for answering my call. That's the yeah. first
2: step. You're very welcome. So maybe you should read Rise Above the Chaos, How to Keep Positive in an Unsettled World. Um, anyway, that was that was a great call, Taylor. Uh, I have to say... Uh, Carolyn, I'll give you my own problems. Yep. You can be my therapist here for a couple of minutes. I don't like right. chaos. <laughs> I mm-hmm. and yet, yet I find myself in chaos quite, surrounded by chaos quite often. And I mm-hmm. and one of my mantras, and especially in the workplace, and especially in uh, given some work that I'm doing currently, and and I hear myself. My mantra is, if you Rudyard Kipling's poem, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too and if you can wait not be tired by waiting or being lied about don't deal in lies or being hated don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise and you know I struggle i 'm somebody who likes to be um, organized and I like to plan and i 'm not uh you know somebody who can 't change plans or it has to be this way but it 's just that we have a strategy and that we 're prepared but there 's so much chaos that happens. And it, and it seems like there's this whole troop of people who like to solve the problems. And then they're like, it's okay. This is how we do it. And so I'm kind of the opposite. And I'm, I'm a pretty chill person, even though you may not think that, or I don't sound that way on the radio, but totally I'm chill. And people don't trust like us, chill. Trust us. They don't like super yes. chill people either. So how do we deal with the chaotic people? Well,
3: what's, what's interesting is that we're all rubbing up against each other right now. So if I, if I call chaos the great teacher, which is the way that I started to embrace it way back at that time of my father's accident, which I also call an in- incident, because, you know, these things, like even the virus, you know, we We probably needed this kind of reflection and this kind of reevaluation right now, you know there must be some reason for it. so if you call chaos the great teacher, what you do in the midst of that, so this can be those chaotic people around you or somebody who is a chaos creator it, if you call it the great teacher, what you're doing is you're demanding a lesson you're demanding to grow you're demanding to learn something, you know if it's the patience and tolerance like Like um, Taylor's call, like she can't solve it right now. So she's got to be able to adapt, you know, Uh adapt that I can't I can't be the problem solver right now, adapt and move on. So a lot of things that we're struggling with, if it's other people's chaos, we've got to recognize what we're struggling with. Minimize the amount of energy we're giving away to it if it's draining us Mm -hmm. and then kind of compartmentalize it like, okay, I'm going to learn a lesson here, but until I have the lesson, I've got to compartmentalize it and focus on something else because if I keep, (laughs) you know, replaying it over and over and I can't solve anything, I'm wasting where I could be proactive. You know, you've got to focus on the events you can control so that you're a planner is great because... People who focus on the events they can control have less chaos.
2: Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. Love the book, Rise Above the Chaos, How to Keep Positive in an Unsettled World. And do you shine or do you whine? I think you shine, Carolyn. I really appreciate your time tonight.
3: All right. And it's available at creativelifesolutions.com. That's my website. And there's also a contact form if your listeners have any questions. Thank okay? you so they much. This is,
2: this is right. Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is a very important subject, and I see a number of patients, and recently I saw a patient in my clinical practice who I had to see in person, I'm doing a lot of virtual visits these days, to teach him how to do intermittent self-catheterization, which is why I invited Dr. Dean Elterman. You can call him a below-the-belt doctor. He's a urologist, an academic urologist at the University Health Network, University of Toronto. He specializes in BPH, benign prosthetic hyperplasia, neuromodulation, OAB, and functional urology. Good evening, Dr.
1: Elterman. Hi, Maureen. Nice to be with you again.
2: Yeah, thanks for joining me from Toronto. I know it's late there.
1: Oh, that's fine. I'm always ready to join you on the show.
2: Excellent. Thank you. Late in a lockdown. Anyway, what else are you doing anyway, right? (laughs) Our sleep is off. Yeah. It's a 24-7 deal. Um, You know, I had a patient in my office who was, well, actually, he wasn't even sure what he was diagnosed with, but he had a lot of symptoms, a lot of urinary symptoms. He was basically... Uh, started with a weak stream, and then he was unable to urinate altogether, and he went to an urgent care center, and about five weeks later, he's had a number of tests, urodynamic tests, a cystoscopy, and he has an indwelling catheter. He's 55 years old. Uh, he, they have told him that eventually he is going to have a terp, a transurethral resection of the prostate, and they just put him on medication. The doctor just put him on medication about five to six weeks um, since his troubles began. So I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that particular case. He'd like to have the indwelling catheter come out, and he would like to be taught intermittent self-catheterization.
5: Right.
1: So... This is a classic presentation of uh, prostate enlargement, benign prostate enlargement or BPH, and it's a it can be a very slow and insidious chronic condition where, you know, as men get older, their prostate starts to enlarge and slowly it'll start to obstruct the stream of urine as it empties the bladder. And eventually many men will actually reach a tipping point where they're going to have the symptoms of a slow stream, incomplete emptying, straining, having to wait a long time for the stream to start. And for many men, they may ignore those symptoms and not seek medical attention, or it might just creep up on them before they know it, but eventually they could actually tip the scales to the other side where they can't even pee at all, and that's going into urinary retention. The good news, though, is that with either medication in many situations or some sort of prostate procedure or surgery, we can actually get the majority of men out of retention before they've done permanent damage to their bladders.
2: Right. So, so this gentleman is quite depressed and he feels like it's, it's been, it's now about seven weeks. Um, and at about six weeks, he was put on medication. Uh, he was given a number of tests and, you know, you have to wait for tests these days. Um, and, uh, he kind of felt felt a little bit like, why didn't they put me on the medication earlier? What would be the initial treatment for somebody with BPH who is having difficulty voiding or unable yeah, so to, unable th- to void altogether, yeah. basically?
1: Yeah. Well, the mainstay of of BPH treatment uh, has been medical therapy. I mean, there's many people who have symptoms and you can just go on to watchful waiting and see how your symptoms go slowly over time. But generally, over the last several decades, we've we've put men on medications and essentially there's two classes of drugs. One class called alpha blockers are essentially prostate relaxers. And there's another class of drugs called 5-alpha reductase inhibitors that are prostate shrinkers. So you've got relaxers and shrinkers. And you can actually take them together. The relaxers actually take about a week to start to work once you start taking them, whereas the shrinkers can actually take six months or more. Uh So if you're getting into trouble with urination, you want to get on those medications as soon as possible. Um, And in many cases with retention, once you go on the med after a week or two, you can try again to be able to pee on your own. Uh, And of course, if the medications don't work, then there are a number of procedures, both more conventional transurethral surgeries, and some new minimally invasive options as well.
2: And so is it best to go the conservative measure um, to start with? You know, Uh, like medications, uh, such as medications, for example, are also good bladder health.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think medications are the easy, most accessible option uh, to men. Uh, You don't need to see a specialist. To get onto medication, this is something that family doctors, GPs can prescribe routinely. So you shouldn't hesitate to mention to your family doctor that you're starting to see some changes in urination, the slowing of your stream, having to wait a long time because they can put you on the medications uh, early on uh, and, again, prevent episodes where you can't pee at all or even prevent the need for having a medication or a surgery in the the Mm -hmm. future. And you mentioned,
2: well, I think I mentioned neurodynamic testing and um, sometimes, uh, or is it often that men will have a cystoscopy done? And what is the purpose of having a cystoscopy done?
1: So cystoscopies are are sort of like, uh, almost like the stethoscope for a urologist. It's a way for us to actually look and see what's going on uh, in the lower urinary tract. So, uh cystoscopy is done with a flexible digital or fiber optic scope. It's much smaller than even a, a size of a, a small pen. Uh, it's done under just local anesthesia. We can use a little bit of a numbing gel. And essentially, it's a way for us to look along uh, the urinary passageway uh, from the urethra all the way back up into the bladder. It can be done for both men and women. And it's useful because it can tell us what is the cause of the obstruction, how big does the prostate look. Is there anything else going on like tumors? Uh, and also, what is the condition of the bladder in terms of its appearance? Uh, and a cystoscopy will give us more details than what we could see with the CT scanner and ultrasound.
2: Uh-huh. And and can people who or men who have not had this treated, uh, they can do damage to their bladders?
1: Yeah. So one of the, you know, there's two reasons for treating BPH. One is the quality of life and the symptoms. It's not fun to have to wake up multiple times at night. It's not fun to have to stand a long time and strain and and sit on the toilet for for many, many minutes. Uh, But of course, there are other important structures that we need to protect, so your bladder and your kidneys. So we want to make sure that your bladder doesn't deteriorate. And what that means is eventually it's going to weaken over time and it may even stop squeezing entirely. And then you're going to be reliant on having to use a catheter your whole life. And of course, if urine backs up, it can actually put pressure on your kidneys and cause uh, renal dysfunction, kidney problems. So we really want to prevent both deterioration of bladder function, we want to prevent kidney damage, and also improve men's quality of lives.
2: My guest is Dr. Dean Elterman. He is an academic urologist, University Health Network at the University of Toronto, specializing in BPH neuromodulation, OAB, and functional urology. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Elterman. Pleasure. Uh, I want to. Most people believe that only women leak urine; uh, that it's associated with little old ladies. There's lots of marketing and pink packaging. I actually have an idea. I mean, let me just run it by you. That I wanted to (laughs) buy some pads and just mark them with. Blank, you know, paper, and then put a sign on it that says, You don't have to live in pads. There are many treatments for you. Um, and then call this number. Anyway, um, because and it's actually the, in some of the drugstores across Canada, it's the number one product adult diapers. And it's not just women, it's men who are affected by this as well. And that's what you specialize in your, uh, with partly in your uh, clinical practice. So um, men can not only leak with stress urinary incontinence after surgical procedures, but they also can get overactive bladder. Tell me what overactive bladder is.
1: So overactive bladder is uh, a group of symptoms where essentially you have the sudden compelling desire to, to urinate and you can't delay or defer going. In other words, you need to go and you need to go right away. And overactive bladder actually afflicts both men and women equally Uh, And it affects them decade for decade. So whether you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, equal numbers of men and women develop overactive bladders. Um, And the main symptoms of an overactive bladder are what we call the fun fun symptoms, frequency, urgency, and nocturia, which means waking waking up at night to pee. So essentially, you have to have urgency, so rushing to the bathroom. And it may also happen frequently, like eight or more times in a day, and also wake you up from sleep. So those are the main symptoms of OAB. Uh, and the challenge, of course, for men is that they can have both prostate symptoms, BPH, like a slow flow, uh, straining, non-emptying, and also OAB symptoms of frequency urgency. So it can be a little bit puzzling as to which symptoms do you treat first and, and how do you even approach these men?
2: And, and which symptoms do you treat first, Dr. Altman?
1: My rule of thumb is really to go to the most bothersome symptoms first. So if men are really bothered by rushing to the bathroom and having small leaks of urine, I would actually treat their OAB first and see how they do. Now, of course, if they also have a slow urinary stream, we may also give them at the same time, say, one of those prostate relaxing medications. So men, we can mix and match different classes of drugs according to which uh, symptoms are bothering our patients.
2: Uh, So, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that there are many treatments for leakage of urine. And of course, with overactive bladder, men and women can leak with that as well. So it can be a dry OAB or a wet OAB. Is that correct?
1: It it can. In fact, about two thirds of OAB is dry, meaning you're not going to have any leaks. And specifically, you know, men who have prostates kind of act as a buffer. So they're less likely to leak compared to women who have OAB. Um, But there's definitely a relationship as well with the development of having an enlarged prostate and then subsequently getting an overactive bladder. And so we often see that when we treat the prostate, especially with surgery or procedures, not only does the flow improve, but also the OAB symptoms improve as well.
2: That's fantastic. Um, you're also doing some research um, on stress urinary incontinence out of the University of Toronto. Tell me a little bit about that and that new device.
1: Yeah. So stress urinary incontinence is leakage associated with coughing, laughing, sneezing. So stress, you physical stress you would put on your bladder, very common uh, in women day to day, uh, especially as they get a bit older. But it is also something that happens in men, specifically after prostate cancer treatment. We know we just finished uh, November, Movember's prostate cancer awareness, and essentially when we remove the whole prostate surgically, surgically to treat prostate cancer. One of the side effects, unfortunately, is leakage of urine or stress incontinence. And so some individuals in Canada have actually developed this new product called the Contino device, and it acts like a small urethral insert, uh, and it can block leaks from happening. So this is one of the new areas of research that we're focused on because we used to just have pads and diapers or external clamps or uh, surgical implants And this is something that's completely different.
2: Yeah, it's fantastic. And I love the fact that there are more and more advancements in treating leakage of urine because people can become isolated and depressed. It's a reason for a long-term care at home admission. And in these days with coronavirus, all of those things matter just that much more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We we want to have uh, men and women living in the community, Uh, not having to worry about having accidents, not worrying about going out in better days without coronavirus, uh, to visit friends and family and and worrying about having a leak when they're out there. Uh, And so all of these strategies, whether it's medication, whether it's pelvic floor physiotherapy, or whether it's uh, a new device like a a Contino urethral insert, all of these can help give uh, at least our patients a greater sense of security and improved quality of life.
2: We just have about 20 seconds left. Um, how can people get uh, learn more about the research, Dr. Altiman? Uh
1: The research, they can look on uh, the uh, Life360 website, as well as mycontino, M-Y-C-O-N-T-I-N-O. So the device is called the Contino uh, device, and it's a Canadian uh, product. And they can look online. There's a number of uh, ways of finding uh, the clinical trial information. There's sites in Vancouver and in Toronto.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all the information.
1: You got questions? She's got answers. The
2: nurse is in for Nurse Talk. We've all had them, controlling bosses, siblings, friends, spouses, parents. Joining me on the line now is Dr. Karash Edelati. He is a psychiatrist and CEO at LU Mind Centers for Brain Excellence in Vancouver. Good evening, Dr. Edelati.
0: Good evening, Maureen.
2: These controlling people, they're a mystery to me, Um, (laughs) but they're everywhere. And uh, so I'm probably going to start out with a a tough question for you, but um, so I... Yesterday, I went to pick my husband up at at the marina, and as I was driving back, I said, I'd spent a few hours by myself in my home, which never happens anyway, and so I get into trouble. So I said to him on the drive home, I I have something to tell you, but I don't want you to respond. This does not warrant a response. I don't want you to say anything. And so he didn't say anything. And so then I said, I have moved the uh, table in the family room to the dining room, and I've moved this pedestal table that I had been on the hunt for forever into the family room. So I'd switch the tables around. And so he didn't say anything for about 30 seconds. And then he said... What did you do? Drag it from one room to the next? Are the floors all chewed up? (laughs) How did you do that? How did you lift that table? And I didn't say anything. And he said, did you do it by yourself? And I said, no, I had help, (laughs) which made him feel a bit better. Then we walked in and he said, I love it. It looks great. Who's the controlling person there? (laughs) You don't have to... I suspect it's me. We have those situations, though, in our lives, right?
0: Well, so it's, it's in everyone's lives, Maureen, without any question. Um, and I'm not going to answer who's a controlling <laughs> yeah,
2: I know. I know it's him, let me tell you. But what exactly <laughs> is a controlling person? Is it a diagnosis?
0: Well, let me just start by looking at why anyone would want to control uh, someone or a situation. Right? I mean, that's oftentimes the million-dollar question uh, and the simple answer is anxiety and fear. Uh, these are the root causes of, uh, any kind of controlling behavior. And some of them are very subtle. You just don't really see it, but, uh, the, you feel it. You feel it in your gut that this, this is actually not feeling so good, right? Uh, so the question would be ultimately, wh- where is this anxiety all coming from? Right? Uh, and oftentimes, uh, When we look at this anxiety, we look at a person's uh, childhood, believe it or not. Uh, Many times uh, we forget about uh, that very, very important part of our lives. And it is uh, actually the part of our lives that has a lot of uh, effect on how we behave, uh, not only in uh, uh, childhood, but also in adulthood.
2: And that spills over into our work life and our interpersonal relationships and our romantic lives?
0: In in every situation, it it shows up in many areas where we don't expect them to show up. And we only notice them after we have been in that uh, relationship, friendship, um, work relationship. And the way we notice it is uh, how it makes us feel.
2: And how is it that uh, their fear, their anxiety, makes them shift to controlling somebody else, somebody else's behavior?
0: Well, let's just go back and see where uh, this anxiety uh, was actually created. Okay. Oftentimes, what you look at is poor attachment. Uh, basically, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of parents, very well-meaning parents, sometimes they don't really mean to um, do this to their kid, but. They bring on on kind of conditional uh, love, basically. Uh, a lot of times, they look at your marks and say, "I love you," or if you don't have very good marks, uh, the default uh, would be not so lovely.
2: <laughs> I um, don't love you anymore. You got to be.
0: That's right. That's right. <laughs> or, or or they um, they nurture you in a very unreliable and sometimes uh, inconsistent way. Um, many people feel. Uh, kind of a very anxious attachment when they're growing up. They feel like, hey, this love can be taken away from me. And so uh, fear oftentimes means mistrust. Um, because if if I feel that my parents or the caregivers are not going to be giving me the love that I deserve, uh, how can I trust the rest of the world to do that for me? So this becomes basically a, a, a very uh, anxious attachment in really bad cases the feeling of abandonment so uh, then people start to develop the anxiety that there is a lot of uncertainty and i need to deal with this uncertainty with a controlling behavior um after a while this becomes a habit and they don't even notice that they're doing it
2: and is it always does it always stem from childhood or can it stem from a traumatic experience later in life.
0: It, it, can, it can also stem from a traumatic experience. I mean, if somebody is in a bad relationship, uh, they get treated really poorly, they develop mistrust. Uh, and as a result of that mistrust, they have unsafe perceptions of what the world is after this uh, traumatic experience. And so this can also become an anxiety provoking situation. And as a result, they start behaving in a controlling way.
2: And uh, I have so many questions, but um, getting back to the childhood, um, is it, you know, I've heard people say you need one good parent. Uh, Do parents also, there's no instruction manual for being a parent, but do parents have to be healthy of mind to prevent raising, controlling adults?
0: Absolutely. We don't come with a a manual for parenting. Uh, We come with a manual for uh, our computers, but, you know, most of the time, we don't know how to parent until we kind of try it out. And if if you're really really good, we read a book. Um, so it's uh, it's important to learn how to parent. And before we do that, we need to understand our own anxiety and what drives our own behavior.
2: Right now, can you disagree with controlling people?
0: That's a tough one because uh, what happens is if somebody uh, gets. Uh, to be controlling uh, the world looks very threatening to them so let's say you disagree with them what they perceive this is as a threat and uh, it's sometimes uh, a threat that they uh, cannot really deal with at a conscious level so all of that unconscious controlling behavior comes out when you disagree with them
2: and so Why They tend to get angry when you don't follow their advice. So why is you following their advice so important to them?
0: Because it makes them feel insecure again. Uh, I mean, just think of uh, any threatening situation. Uh, When we feel uh, threatened, our fight-or-flight response mechanisms kick in. And oftentimes, uh, this means that... uh, we become angry. Anger is actually an energized anxiety.
2: Mm. I've never heard it described that way, but that actually is a great definition. Anger is energized anxiety. Uh, so do controlling people uh, have personal rules that they expect others to follow?
0: No, they do. And, and these, are, these are rules made up so that, it, again, it makes them feel safe about their own internal anxiety uh, and it is a way for them to have um, others acknowledge their anxiety indirectly.
2: And and do they actually see themselves as controlling people?
0: Oftentimes not uh, and the reason for this goes back to where this is coming from and oftentimes this is coming from their automatic mind or sometimes we refer to it as the subconscious mind, the emotional mind, or the unconscious mind, so they don't really see it at um, at a conscious level, unless unless they have uh, psych- uh, psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies where they want to manipulate people.
2: Right, right, um, and so I, I'd like you to stay on the line. Uh, we're we're just hitting up against the break um, because I'd like to talk about how does one deal with controlling people, or if somebody happens to by some miracle recognize that they are a controlling person, um, how can they actually change that or help themselves uh, in that regard, Doctor Edelotti? If you don't mind staying on the line. Dr. Korosh Edelati is the is a psychiatrist and the medical director at Elumine Centers for Brain Excellence in Vancouver. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Edelati. My pleasure, Mary. We have Alana from Winnipeg on the line. Good evening, Alana. Good evening. How are
5: you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Excellent.
2: Good. Have you got a question for me?
5: Well, I just wanted to sort of make a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, we used to have hope chests for girls at 16 on their birthday would receive a hope chest. And then they would get prepared for their future life, whether they had a husband or not, they would be able to have their home sustained. Now what we need is a vocational program involved in our schools, which our government is designed, the Western government, is absolutely designed to create independence. So we should be creating this vocational program where it doesn't matter skin color or sex, gender, Um, desires. Anybody and everybody should be able to walk up to this program and create their food shelter and clothing um, hope chest, quote unquote, so that we don't have to rely on anybody. And then everybody that has perhaps um, more of a susceptibility, if they were perhaps um, hospitalized as a child with diphtheria or something so that they were isolated and so they wanted control over anything as they grew up, whether their parents were um, abusive or not abusive. So, yeah, I just think that we need to um, continue to evolve our government, of course, I'm a big advocate to the North Star is one of the agendas that we keep forgetting as we're voting every four years <laughs> that we now have a to get show. to the North Star. So we all have to be independent, but yet we have to be able to rely on each other at the same time for all those wonderful things that we need, like family and friends and, and bosses. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I think you bring up a great point. and And Dr. Adelotti, uh, is this, is there some way to protect against um, being attracted to somebody who might be a controlling person? So, are, are, are some people at greater risk than others? Say those that don't have the opportunities. And I fully agree with you, Alana. I think we need to do more and more to have more access and more uh, ha- access to education and healthcare, especially for girls and women. Um, but is there some way that we can uh, provide immunity against becoming, working for a controlling boss or, or getting into a relationship with a control freak?
0: I think uh, the point that Alana brought up was wonderful. She talked about uh, building up self-force, and it is really the uh, ultimate uh, weapon against being controlled. Uh, Understanding that uh, every single person is a worthy human being, and being controlled uh, really is not appropriate to the self-force. So if we have programs that uh, that create that self-worth and help people understand that no matter what childhood they had or what what circumstances they grew up under, uh, they're worthy human beings, and uh, once they recognize that, um, they have the world in front of them, uh, and this will prevent them from being a victim of someone who's controlling.
2: Right. Um, no, it's, it's a great point. But for those people who don't have that benefit or, um, you know, don't feel great about themselves for whatever their past experience may have been, is there some way that they can protect themselves against uh, getting involved with somebody like this? And then I don't want to forget to ask you, we don't, we don't have too much time left, um, how can controlling people help themselves?
0: Well, first thing is uh, identifying uh if there is a controlling behavior uh, being experienced, right? This is uh, one of the ways to see it. But uh, to go back even further, being able to deal with um, their own underlying anxieties um, and seeking out uh, mental health uh, professionals uh, to help them build resilience. In schools, uh, uh, they can introduce something called social-emotional learning, which is a way of really... Uh, helping children develop that resilience. Uh, And um, this is uh, something that the governments have to take on um, to create. But on a uh, level where people can kind of protect themselves is understanding when they're uh, entering any kind of work or uh, relationship, any kind of interpersonal interaction, where that uh, controlling behavior is and how it is affecting them. That right. Would be the first step is identifying
2: it. Mhm. Many people have to keep jobs and that's a big worry today. Um, so they they will put up with things or they stay in a relationship because of finances. Um, but it all ties back to self-worth, I guess.
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean it, it's a very sometimes a very challenging situation. I mean uh, there's really no easy way out of a controlling situation other than recognizing that um, you can always uh, be better in terms of what you're doing in your work or whether uh, you can be in a relationship where you feel uh, loved without any uh, control or condition.
2: Thank you so Uh, much Dr. Edelotti. We're up against the clock here I'll get you back next week we're going to talk about narcissism It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin She's an integrative physician, a TEDx speaker, co-founder at West Coast Women's Clinic and author of The Mind Body Cure. She is Dr. Belle Pawa and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Pawa. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you it's so nice much. To be here. For, oh, it's wonderful to have you. This is a very hot topic. I know you do a lot of work around menopause and perimenopause, and, and that t- and beyond, and that the, those times of life for women. And uh, but you've written an, an, a phenomenal book called The Mind Body Cure. And just have a quick question as it relates to menopause or that time in a woman's life: um, Is it beneficial for a woman? To We all have stress in our lives and, and stressors, and, but is it beneficial to um, treat though or learn to manage or to deal with or process all of the stress that is coming at women today? And, and does that have an impact on perimenopause and menopause and beyond?
6: Absolutely, Maureen. Um, the stress hormones are cortisol and adrenaline. So when we're in fight or flight, we secrete a lot of those hormones. And that's fine for short-term stress. But if a woman is under long, chronic stress, excessive stress hormones, it impacts her estrogen and progesterone. Because we have a hormone symphony that works in the body. So one action has a reaction. So we've noticed at the clinic for the past 20 years, we thought we were just going to deal with estrogen and progesterone. But much to our surprise, we've learned how much of a big bully cortisol is and women who are stressed have a more dramatic uh, journey through menopause and perimenopause. They have mood disorders and anxiety and more hot flashes and insomnia is a big one. So stress shows up big time for, for women. And do we all have
2: stress or do some manage stress better than others? How does that work?
6: Well, stress, as you know, is pervasive. It's everywhere. Everyone has it. But we react differently to different things. So a little bit of stress is actually good. It helps us to stay safe. For example, with all this stress with COVID, a little bit of stress is good. We wear a mask. We distance. We listen. But when the stress becomes excessive and prolonged, that's when some people don't handle it. They don't have the resilience. And then their body starts to break down. They get symptoms. And I've been speaking to women who are, you know, suffering from mood disorders, they're becoming irritable, they're becoming in chronic insomnia, experiencing a lot of sleep disorders or headaches. So eventually stress has to manifest in the body if we don't take care of it. Becoming resilient and learning to cope with stress is one of the things that we do emphasize.
2: Now, um, you you became perhaps resilient um, after dealing with chronic pain following a tragic car accident that you experienced. How, what did you learn from that? And how did you uh, transform that to help your patients?
6: You know, Maureen, I, I feel that uh, it was a terrible phase in my life. The accident just Literally, I was hit by a truck, and I was superwoman, delivering babies, finished delivering a baby, and I was hit by a truck. But those seven years of being in the medical system, I realized what was missing, and uh, I had to become my own best doctor. And as a physician, being a patient, I had to learn to navigate this system. And this system that we're living in is a wonderful system but it's intervention-based. It's a you know pill for every ill. You're, you're in pain, here's a drug. You're depressed, here's a drug. You can't sleep, here's a drug. And what I had to discover was the body integration. The mind and body are so inextricably linked. And I have to learn about the vital autonomic nervous system. And once you learn to control your nervous system, you can actually create and repair and heal your body. And I think that's one of the big messages I want to get out there, and that's why I wrote the book, is I think it's so important for people who are listening to learn about their nervous system and take charge and reclaim their power when it comes to prevention and mental health. It's up to you. You know your mind the best. But we do need intervention. We still need doctors for the very severe symptoms, of course. You mentioned
2: that um, the continuous and excessive release of stress hormones in our bodies are what's behind 75% of visits to a doctor's office for, for women or is that women and men as well?
6: That's for men and women. And that figure is actually conservative. So I use the lower range, but it went from 75 to 90%. Isn't that astonishing? It is. That, it is. Right? In our medical office, I was a GP for many years Think about things like heartburn, irritable bowel syndrome, um, headaches. Headaches, right. Yeah. And yeah. even low libido, you'll be, you'll be interested to know. Even low libido is affected by chronic stress.
2: Really? What a shocker. Yes. No.
6: <laughs> <laughs> <So>.
2: <laughs> um, now, you have developed the Reframe Toolkit, and that's in your fabulous book, um, The Mind Body Cure. And um, so tell me a little bit about the Reframe Toolkit. Kit, though, so people can help um, themselves and make specific changes to their diets, or their ability to sleep, or exercise habits, and and other um, things that interfere with their with their lives.
6: You know, diet, exercise, sleep—they're all important, but the most important thing is resetting your nervous system so that your mind is clear. You make better choices about your diet and exercise. So. I made it very simple, Briefly, I'll describe it briefly, and it's, of course, in a longer version in the book. But the R is for reset. Reset your nervous system through breath, mindfulness, and, and a word. So the breathing is important. E is for exercise. Exercise is important for burning off your excessive cortisol and also for your immune system. Food and gut, your gut-brain connection. The R is for rest. Get some downtime away from all the media and turning off your phone and unplugging so they can sleep and revive your immune system. A is for assessing your mental dialogue. It's really important to be aware of your thoughts because your thoughts change your biology. And M is for mindset. Uh, In the book, I talk a lot about your health mindset versus your illness mindset. So cultivate a mindset of resilience and learn how to respond to stress rather than react to stress. And E is, of course, examined. Go get an examination. If your symptoms are severe, you're having a lot of problems, you're not able to manage your symptoms at home. We still need intervention. So prevention and intervention go hand in hand. Prevention is what you can do at home, the choices you make. but sometimes we need to intervene when the symptoms are severe.
2: It's it's fantastic information, a great book. Your website I know is D R B A L P A W A. d r b a l p a w a.com and that's where people can order your book?
6: Yes, they can go to the website or you can just go to amazon.com and look at The Mind Body Cure. And I, I'm so excited because I'm holding the only copy right now. Oh, con- and it will be, it will be, it will be on the shelves oh. on September 5th at all the store.
2: Wonderful! Congratulations on that, Dr. Power, and thanks for joining me concerned about aging. and In fact, September is National Healthy Aging Month. Uh, There are so many illnesses like diabetes mellitus, congestive heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and some forms of dementia that uh, can be delayed or even prevented. But these are some of the most common uh, health concerns of people as they age. Uh, The other thing I hear in my clinic all the time is pain, joint pain, um, neuropathy, um, the loss of muscle strength, so is associated with um, falls, and that is also partly preventable. But uh, information, education, absorption of that, uh, and perhaps a positive attitude may help you to overcome illness and uh, also personal losses, which is which occur as people age as well. Uh, as you look ahead uh, to take those steps for successful aging. So it's up to you to make those choices about lifestyle, healthcare, personal pursuits, and and your retirement plans. Um, And uh, I wanted to mention too that anxiety is such a common mental illness in, in the world and so many people face that. And I think that is a contributing factor to some of the decisions people make around their health, and I wanted to mention a couple of books that I'm reading right now. And I'll tell you the reason I'm reading them is, um, you know, in part so I could help my patients. So I, I see lots of patients. I see them uh, in my clinic, but mostly I see them virtually these days. And so, so many patients experience anxiety, and so I, I like to recommend. You know, I really don't want to see somebody, you know, twice a week or every week. Is, you know, I, I don't want it to cost them. Unnecessary um, expense, provide, you know, have an unnecessary expense for them. I try to get people to do as much as possible. So, um, to that end, I have decided that I'm going to, you know, read as many books about anxiety as I can to choose the right one that works for the right patient or that I would think would work for the right patient. So, two of the books that I'm reading currently one is called The Wisdom of Anxiety by Cheryl Paul, and which is an outstanding book. And it talks about Uh, I'm just about halfway through, so... But it does talk about, um, you know, how this is a very common condition, and actually, you know, looking at anxiety as a gift, and looking deeper into uh, the relationship of anxiety, that anxiety has to your life, and and what you can do um, to, you know, certain mantras and certain ways to approach particular situations as it relates to anxiety. She starts out with a story. She had a storybook life, a charmed life, really, and then she decided to go to Brazil. Um, and where she experienced um you know the just horrific um you know what viewing abject poverty and um you know not having enough food and having cockroaches line the walls that you know made it look like the walls were were painted black and um and but she goes through and talks about specific situations that she has experienced, and that you know common situations that people um, have experienced um everything from Uh, loss of a child um, to loss of a job to divorce and so how uh, to deal with these situations and addresses fear and so it's actually a very uh, very good book and the other one and to be honest with you I just started reading these because I was you know I'm shallow I was attracted to the title (laughs) The Wisdom of Anxiety sounded good to me and it is extremely wise and uh, then the other one was Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty he has a great podcast and it was literally the title think like a monk and you know it's a way of approaching life in a calmer fashion essentially so without going into um that the detail of that Um, but i think it's really important to address your anxiety if you have that i also think it's very very important to adopt and maintain healthy habits such as cigarette smoking lots of people smoke cigarettes or vape um and so you know i it's important to not to do that, but it's also important to look at why you're doing that. Um, Alcoholic consumption, that is up big time in, especially in the pandemic. And so taking a look at why you might be uh, drinking more than one alcoholic beverage in a 24 hour period, I can hear some people laughing out there uh, right now. Um, I had in fact I had a fellow in my clinical practice recently and he was saying how he was stressed out about dating he had been recently divorced he was kind of late 50s and you know this whole this whole thing um, about the online dating and I'm gonna be talking with a great online dating coach next week so join me next week um, but how that how stressful that was and so we were talking about his issues and I have to ask certain questions and one of them was about alcohol consumption and he's like well I never used to drink that much before but it certainly has increased during the pandemic and that was associated with stress and um, you know getting adjusted to his new normal Um, it's important that you exercise regularly and that's every single day maintaining that triad of weight bearing aerobic exercise and balance activities very important uh, for your balance as you age maintain a comfortable weight you know certainly get on that scale get that number and and you know try to use the BMI, the body mass index, as a guide, um, but you know, do that in line with your physician, or you can email me for my all-in diet. I have a, a patient in Saudi Arabia. Actually, he's lost about thirty pounds, uh, in in about six or seven weeks, and uh, he's diet. He has diabetes type one, and his blood sugars were all over the map. And um, so, these are things you can get control of. And you know, his his mood is better. He's calmer. He's had so many benefits uh, to that. And his relationship is on the way to improving. Um, perhaps I'll cover that, uh, that case uh, at a later time. It's also important to maintain intellectual stimulation and socialization. So strengthen those family relationships, get out with friends, resolve those intergenerational conflicts, you know, speak up, say what you mean, mean what you say, don't say it mean, teach others how to treat you if you're being treated unfairly in your family. The other thing that's very important is to be wise in financial planning. Uh, you know, so you want to plan in advance for that retirement and don't live beyond your means and care manage your investments and assets. We really don't know what's going to happen with the stock market. It's looking good now, but you never know. And it's also important to choose a knowledgeable physician, one that you're comfortable with, who's who's skilled in the medical treatment of older adults, uh, and ensure that you communicate your goals of care to your family and your physician. And and this is the time where you may express your advanced directives in writing. So what would happen as you age? what you would like, what what your wishes are, what you would like to do, especially in terms of of healthcare, and and it's also important to you know be comfortable with your future living arrangements, and so ensure that those are stable and um, satisfactory and and clean, and that you have, if you need it, you know have the help that you uh, require, but. And also be very careful in terms of rushing or um, doing too much, Uh, getting up in the middle of the night. If you have overactive bladder, anything like that, get that treatment because that can actually lead to falls and fractures. So there's lots of things to do, but it's up to you to take that on and be very intentional in how you plan to age.